All right, I want to start with a question. I want you to think about this. How do you determine whether a piece of information that you hear is true or false? When you hear something and you just, you're not really sure whether to accept it like at face value, what do you do? Uh, Do you Google it? I just covered all of us, right? You go on the trusty interwebs. Uh, maybe maybe you, uh, you go to Wikipedia, right? If you ever try to cite that as a source in a paper, students, you know that doesn't work, right? Uh, or, you know, I know a lot of friends who are way smarter than me. Maybe, maybe you phone a friend, right? Oh, this person's an expert on this subject, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them and see if, if what I heard or read is true. Or, or maybe you're, you're just a really trusting person and you just accept everything at face value. There's a word for that. It's gullible, but maybe that's you, right? Uh, one of the more unfortunate phrases that has become popularized in our culture in the last few years is fake news, right? We've all encountered fake news. Some untrue things are posted on the internet and uh, thanks to social media and hashtags in YouTube, right, people start retweeting and reposting and regramming and whatever you can re, right? And the post goes immediately viral until someone has the thought to say, maybe we should check and see if this is actually true. They do a little homework and you realize, okay, Jackie Chan's not dead, right? That poor guy has had like 10 fake death articles in the last few years. And no, Charles Manson has not been released on parole, right? That, that's happened three times over the last few years. Fake news stories, right? The Harvard Division of Continuing Education posted a, a very helpful article on how to spot fake news. And they give some just practical tips for, for seeing these. This is common sense stuff, but it's helpful, right? First, vet the publisher's credibility. Right? If, it's a, if it's a guy who you know, created a blog, you know, he lives in his mom's basement you know, and has a Yahoo email account, probably not a reputable source. If you, if you have Yahoo, I'm sorry. Um, I apologize for that. That wasn't in the manuscript. But, um, so you want to vet the pub- publisher's credibility. Is this coming from a credible source? You also want to make sure uh, that the, there's quality there, right? If there's a lot of typos, you know, if there's you know, emojis in the article, it's probably not legitimate, right? You also want to check sources. What sources do they cite? Can you follow those as well? And then if all else fails, lastly, you ask the professionals. There are ways to check these things, right? And that's good advice for us. Before we decide, really what it's saying there is before you decide whether something's true or false, make sure it's from a credible, reliable authority. That's what you do. Now, in our passage this morning, Jesus makes an extremely staggering claim. In fact, he makes a number of staggering claims. And as he speaks, his audience, just as been happening all throughout the Gospel of John, they're weighing his words, and they're trying to determine whether or not what he's saying is true or false. They're doing what each of us has to do with pieces of information we receive. They're doing what each of us has to do with Jesus and his claims. Right? And as we look at this scene... What we see is some will will believe and some will reject and scoff. And there is this group of people in this passage who believe in the claims of Christ. But here's the thing. We don't hear from them at all. In fact, we only get one verse, the last verse, verse 30. Just as a side note tells us that some believed. The group we hear most from this morning is the Pharisees. We've seen them already. We've seen this kind of interaction with Jesus in opposition to him and his, his, his claims already. 
And so Jesus takes time, again, to address them. Maybe you've heard the idiom, the the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? That's what the Pharisees are. And Jesus is answering these squeaky wheel Pharisees who are bringing these accusations against him. They're refusing to believe. They're calling fake news, right? And he does something. As he does this, he's doing something very important for us. He's showing us that we can believe in him and his staggering claims. It gives us good reason to believe. And he's telling us, listen, here's why you can embrace the light. And as he does that, as he points out the, the problem with the Pharisees and their, their spiritual darkness, he also warns us against the things that keep us from seeing the truth. So while Harvard and Snopes and Fact Checker, right, those things are extremely helpful as you're, you're reading news on the internet, determining whether or not news is fake or real, we, we actually don't need those things as we consider Jesus. All that we need is found right here in God's word for us this morning. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see three things that Jesus calls us to do. And as he's telling us these things, as we're pulling these out of the text, he's answering the question for us, how can we have the light of life? Right? That's, that's the big question that's being answered in these verses. How can we have the light of life? And he gives us an answer in three ways. First, we see that we're, we're to embrace the light, verses 13 through 18. Then we're going to see that we're to beware of spiritual darkness, verses 19 through 24. And then finally, we'll see in verses 25 through 30 that we are to comprehend the cross. Embrace the light, beware of spiritual darkness, and comprehend the cross. So let's jump in. The first thing, thing we see here is this call from Jesus to embrace the light. Now, here's the staggering claim in verse 12. Jesus again, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this is the second of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And Jesus is using a metaphor that was loaded with meaning and had some immediate reference point in what was happening around him on the last day of the Feast of Booths. If you weren't here last week or didn't get to hear Pastor Clint's sermon where he gave a context for this, this feast that was going on, or this annual feast that would commemorate God's miraculous guiding and sustaining of his people in the wilderness after their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Go back and listen to last week and we're, we're on that last day of the feast here And what would happen, a number of things would happen in this feast. Every evening, the people would light these these four large lanterns. And they would do this in an area, the treasury, or it's also called the court of women. And they would light these large lanterns. They were so large that one Jewish writing stated that all of Jerusalem, remember this was up on a hill, every court in Jerusalem was covered in the light from these lanterns. So they'd light these four lanterns, and then... Dancers and singers would have individual torches in addition to these four lanterns. They would light those. They would sing psalms and dance all night. Right? It's, it's basically a first century Jewish rager, right? Until dawn. And they would celebrate and praise God for his work. So if you remember last week, just as this drawing of water would remind God's people of provision in the wilderness during Exodus... So these lanterns were meant to remind God's people of how he was present with them and guided them throughout their time in the wilderness into the promised land. And we see this, this points right back to Exodus chapter 13, 21 and 22. Here's how God led, uh, 
and guided his people, Israel, in the wilderness. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So how did God's people Israel, as they were uh, uh, leaving Egypt and then they were in the wilderness before they got to the promised land, how did they know where to go? They were nomadic people. This, this is how. This was their sort of GPS, right? If the cloud moved, it was God's presence, they would move. Not only that, this is how they were protected from their enemies. And that's just kind of a no-brainer because who wants to mess with a group of people who hangs out with a pillar of fire, right? I mean, it would literally terrify the, the surrounding nations. And so it would guide them and it would also protect them. And this is how they were led from slavery to freedom. This is how they were led from the wilderness to the promised land. And it's in this setting, and, and Jesus has this in mind, and the people have this in mind as they're celebrating this, that Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. See what he's saying? I am the presence and guidance and protection for God's people. I am the one who leads you from slavery to freedom. I am the one who leads you from the wilderness of darkness to the promised land of salvation. That's the metaphor and illustration Jesus is using here. And this isn't the only time we see this light and dark metaphor in the Bible. In fact, it's all over. The Jews may have been singing a psalm like Psalm 27.1 in this feast. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or maybe Isaiah 9.2 was in mind. This prophecy of the coming Savior. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. We see that theme all throughout the Bible. And if you remember when we started the Gospel of John, we see this in chapter 1. What does John say in John 1.4? In him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. So you get it? The light of the world. What is Jesus saying? I am salvation. I am deliverance. I am true life. True life and salvation is found in me. John 1.9. The true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So let's put these together because we see a lot of this in the Gospel of John, right? We've seen bread of life. We've seen water. Jesus as the bread of life and living water means that he is our provision and that he is our abundant satisfaction. In Jesus, we find our spiritual sustenance and our ultimate joy and overflowing satisfaction, right? It's what we saw last week. With this illustration, which is also rich with Old Testament imagery, what is Jesus saying? He's telling us that he is our deliverance and our guide into true, abundant, eternal life. He's saying, I am the one who will guide you from the darkness of sin into the light of salvation. If you embrace me as the light, receive me by faith, you will have life. Okay? That's John eight twelve. Now, how do they respond? Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They say, fake news, Jesus. 
Now, one of the ongoing questions that the Pharisees have is, by what authority does this guy get to say these things? He's making these grand claims about bread of life and light of the world and living water. He's, he's claiming that those who follow him walk in the light of God's ways. And this escalates by the end of chapter 8. And they realize he is actually making the claim that he is God himself. And they want to kill him for it. And their thought is, listen, he's just bearing witness about himself. He has no authority. You can't just say, I am this and be that. Right? So if, if a man walked up to me on a street this afternoon, and he was wearing plain clothes like this, and he said, listen, I am a police officer, show me your ID. You, you fit the description of a suspect we're looking for. What would I say in that moment? I would say, uh, you need to show me your badge. Right? You're not wearing a uniform, there's no police car. I, you could just be anyone just making this claim, Right? I need to see, I need proof of your supposed higher authority, right? And then, now, if you pulled out a badge, I could say, that looks fake, right? But let's just, you know, I would probably then say, okay, I'll, I'll play along, right? That's kind of the idea of what the, the Pharisees are asking here. But here's the problem, because we have to understand, we can sympathize with them. They're asking good questions, but if you, if you take the police officer analogy, right, there's one problem with this. Jesus has shown his badge, so to speak, time and time again. Right? We're eight chapters into this thing. He has turned water into wine. He has healed people. He's multiplied bread and fish. He has taught with authority. And they still consider him a liar. They still consider him a fraud. And they say, listen, you're just a man. You can't appeal to your own testimony. The same criticism here that began in chapter 5. Now also, according to Jewish law, when a testimony was given in the court of law, a suspect could be convicted or could be cleared by two witnesses. If there was a testimony of two witnesses, they would, be, they would say, okay, we'll accept that. Right? We see that in verse 17. And so they're saying, listen, your testimony doesn't hold up. You can't just, you're just one person. Who else is bearing witness to you? And so Jesus responds. And just before we read this, think about how frustrating this might be if you're the Pharisees. Because he doesn't jump into this apologetic defense for his authority, does he? Here's what he says. He essentially says, I'm my own witness. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. So in other words, Jesus is saying, yes, I bear witness about myself, but that's because I know where I come from. He's saying, I don't have to appeal to a higher authority because I am the highest authority. I come from heaven. There is no higher authority than me. For me to appeal to a higher authority would mean there's an authority higher than myself, right? Maybe you've had a situation where you're frustrated, like in a customer service kind of thing, and you say, let me talk to your manager, right? Don't raise your hand if you've done that. Some of you do that all the time. That's just the way you're wired. Chill out. But, right, imagine that. Let me talk to your manager. And then the guy looks you in the eye and says, I am the manager, and you're like, oh, great, here we go. And then you say, let me talk to the owner. And he looks you in the eye and he says, I am the owner, right? What are you going to do then? You just, you just, you got to accept it, right? There is no higher authority. Jesus is saying, I come from heaven. I am the highest authority. There's no higher authority, but there is, Jesus says, another witness. 
There is another witness. Look at verses 15 to 18 where Jesus appeals to the Father. He says, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus tells them, listen, you're in no place to to make the right judgment in the first place because you are judging according to the flesh, meaning you're thinking in a worldly sense. You don't have an eternal mindset to discern God's truth. But Jesus plays their game for a bit. He says, you're right. I'll give you two witnesses. Here they are. Are you ready? One, me, and two, the Father. Those are my two witnesses. That's all Jesus appeals to. He doesn't get into this apologetic conversation trying to say, look at all my miracles, look at all I've done. Why don't you guys believe me? He doesn't plead with them. He just says, listen, I am God. I am the light. And the Father bears witness to me. Now, what what does this mean for us? Friends, this means that we can trust Jesus. His testimony holds up. The Father bears witness to him. We've seen it throughout John, but you know what John's gospel doesn't include is his baptism. If you read the other gospels, you'll see that at the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. But before that, the Father speaks with an audible voice from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father bears witness to the Son. But we already, we already saw in John chapter 5, 39, Jesus tells us, the scriptures bear witness to me as well. I'm the fulfillment. You're seeing what you've read, what you've studied in the Old Testament. You're seeing it unfold before your very eyes. And if you knew the scriptures, you would know me. But not only that, we have the miracles of Jesus that bear witness to him as well. His own teaching authority. All of these things show us that this isn't just some random person who just decided to show up and start making crazy claims. He is the light. His testimony holds up. We can embrace him as the light. We can trust him to save us, right? That's what this ceremony at the Feast of Booths shows us. Just as he led his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt to the freedom of the promised land, we can trust him to bring us out of the darkness of sin and death into spiritual light, but we can also trust him to guide us in our daily lives. That's what those those pillars of God's presence were. They, They guided God's people wherever they were to go. Friends, this is the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is people looking for light and salvation in all of the wrong places. But then there's a gracious and loving and faithful promise-keeping God who is pursuing his people and making these promises that the true light is coming. My Bible reading plan. How are we doing on our Bible reading plans this year, by the way? Okay, not good, apparently. All right, so my Bible reading plan has me in the book of Judges, right? And Judges is disturbing, Uh, In fact, some scholars call it the book of Israel's dark ages. And and one verse sums up the reason why it was the dark ages for God's people. Judges 17.6 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was darkness because people were pursuing their own selfish desires. So what did God do? God gave them 
judges. But guess what? The judges were flawed too, and the judges would die too. So then after that, God gave them kings. But guess what? Even the best kings were flawed too. Even King David, the man after God's own heart, was a sinner. And even he died. And the prophets and the priests, God used them mightily, but they were darkened by sin as well. So God, in his grace, what what is he doing? What's the story of the Bible? He is preparing his people for the true light which was to come into the world. You keep pursuing darkness, I keep pursuing you with light. That's the story of, of the Bible. The Gospel of John tells us that in Jesus, the light has come into the world, but the world did not know him. Friends, this is really no different than our day, right? It's considered a virtue to live as a light unto yourself. That's that's the message we hear around us. You just look inward, you sort of discover the light of who you are, you discover your truth, and you live for it. Don't let anybody tell you that that's wrong. And, And what is that but doing what's right in your own eyes? And God's Word says that's spiritual darkness. So it's into this mindset, right, as those lanterns of our culture are shining down on us and saying, hey, listen, you're a light unto yourself. Jesus says, no, 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 listen, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Embrace the light. Not a light, but the light. Not one option to add to your other pursuits of light, but the only way you can have true life. Jesus invites us to embrace it. Yet, here's such an important question that I've wrestled with as I've read through the Gospels over the years. Okay, if this is so clear, then why do the Pharisees reject it? The authority of God is right in front of their faces. The highest authority imaginable was right before their eyes, and they missed it. Why? And Jesus goes on to tell us. It's because of their spiritual blindness. And that leads us to our second point. So number one, this call to embrace the light. And number two, this call to beware of spiritual darkness. Beware of spiritual darkness. Now at first glance, if you just read this passage, it might seem like it's not really about the light of the world after verse 12. Jesus says it and he moves on. There's no mention of light from Jesus or anyone else. He says, I'm the light. And then he begins this back and forth with the Pharisees, right? But if we look closer, what Jesus is actually doing is he's pointing out the darkness that clouds the minds and the hearts of those who are in opposition to him. He's explaining why they aren't embracing the light. And in doing so, he's giving us a warning against the spiritual darkness. We too are susceptible to this. And the religious leaders here are a devastating example of what it means to reject the light of Christ. Jesus tells them some harsh things. Notice what he tells them in verse 19. First, he points out their spiritual ignorance. He says, you don't know God. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So they're they're proving what Jesus has already said in verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. And here's an example. As Jesus talks about his heavenly father, they're asking questions about his earthly father. They're saying, okay, who is this guy? Maybe we can go talk to him and he could sort of work this thing out for us. And Jesus responds by telling them, the very fact that you ask that question reveals that you don't know God. 
You don't know who I am, therefore you don't know who God is. And because you don't know who God is, you don't recognize me, and that's why you're rejecting the light. Now this is, we have to feel the weight of this. This is the most offensive insult you could bring against the Pharisees. These men prided themselves in the knowledge of God's law. They knew their Hebrew Bible better than any of us in this room. They had at least the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Let me say that again. Memorized. They knew the ins and outs of God's law. So to tell them they don't know God, that's, that's a blow, right? Uh, this Tuesday, a handful of Seven Mile Road men had a blast doing trivia at Mighty Squirrel. All right, where's my trivia team? The Golden Boys, okay? We got, we got 10th place out of 17 teams. So look out, Trivia World. Not last. Now, if they had a Hebrew Bible Law of God trivia night and the Pharisees showed up, like they wrote that in, we were the Golden Boys, they're like, hey, we're the Pharisees, they would win every single night, right? They, they would have this down. There is no way to compete with their knowledge of God. And Jesus says all of that knowledge is useless because you know about God, but you don't know him. It would be like me telling you, listen, all that money, all that time, all that training, all that effort you spent into your degree, all that preparation that goes into your career field, I just want to let you know that's a waste. You actually know nothing about your career. You'd be insulted, right? Rightfully so. You'd be offended. So, so what is the warning for us here? Listen, here's what Jesus is pointing out to, to them and to us. A head knowledge about God does not equate to a heart knowledge of God. You can know about him without knowing him. And that leads to spiritual blindness. That is spiritual blindness. Intellectual prowess doesn't lead to the light of life. We live in one of the most brilliant cities in the world, right? We both produce and attract some of the sharpest minds in medicine, in technology, in law and history and literature and in business. The brain power and skill in this room is top notch. I was talking to, I won't say who it was, I was talking to one of you the other day and I was like, hey, how'd your day go? And, you, and, and, and he was like, well, today, you know, it was open heart surgery, saved a guy's life. And I was like, oh my gosh, I... I went to Costco today, right? Like, that was cool. I got some cookies for the movie night, 220 of them, right? The skill and power of, our, of, of, of the brain power represented in this room is incredible. And listen, those are good things. God, God uses those to, to contribute to the common good. It's a, a part of his common grace. But friends, as we think of eternity, those things are useless if we don't know God, right? One of the most encouraging things about the New Testament is we actually have a beautiful example of a, a Pharisee. He wasn't in this crowd, but he was one of them who was converted to Christianity, the Apostle Paul. And listen to what Paul says about this. We can hear this from the very lips of a former Pharisee. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You hear that? 
I had it all. I was the best of the best. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's saying, friends, listen, it's possible to know all the right things about God, but completely miss knowing him. That's spiritual darkness. He says, that was me. And when I met Christ, I took all of that and I counted it as lost because there's no greater joy. There's not enough knowledge and accolades or treasure in the world to compare to what it means to intimately know Jesus. A.W. Tozier says, the world is perishing for lack of the knowledge of God and the church is famishing for want of his presence. You know, in Matthew 5, Jesus actually tells believers in him, you are the light of the world. How does that happen? Because when you embrace the light, when you truly know God, you shine the light of Christ to those around you. Friends, if we want to be people useful for kingdom work, a people God uses to bring the knowledge of him to the world around us that's perishing, then we must be a people in pursuit of knowing God, knowing him rightly. If people willing to take all of our achievements, however good they are, all of our earthly wisdom and accolades and success and lay them at the feet of Jesus and say, that counts as nothing compared to knowing you. May it never be said of us, Seven Mile Road, you know about God, but you don't know God. There is no greater indictment against a people. But Jesus actually goes on and he takes that screw and he screws it even tighter and says something even more. He tells them not only are you spiritually ignorant, but this spiritual ignorance leads to death. He says, you will die in your sins. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. And Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now when Jesus says you will seek me, what he means is that they're going to continue looking for the Messiah that God promised. But they're not going to find him because he's already come and they've rejected him. Instead, those who refuse to embrace the light, they're going to continue to dwell in darkness. And the end result, if they don't turn and embrace the light, is that they will die in their sin. Now, what does it mean to die in your sin? Because we're all sinners. That's, the Bible's clear there. And we all die. So, so what does he mean here? We all die a physical death. And we're all sinners. Does that mean we all die in our sin? No. The Bible talks about death really in two ways. A good way and in a bad way. The first way is to die in faith. Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now that kind of death of a believer is precious to God. Not because death is not painful, right? It's a result of sin. But it's precious to God because it's the beginning of eternal life with him. Right? Not by any merit of our own, but by God's grace to us in Jesus, we who die in faith, we enter into the rest that God has prepared for us. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. God looks at that and says, that's, that's precious. That's the right way to die. Now, the only other way to die is what Jesus mentions here. It's to die in your sin. And the first time Jesus says it, he says it later, but the first time he says sin singular. And it's referring to the sin of unbelief. In R.C. Sproul comments here, he says, A person who has no faith, the unconverted person, 
remains in sin, and the worst calamity that could ever befall a human being is to die in that state. Why? Well, Jesus has already told us, right, in John chapter 3, that when that happens, the wrath of God remains on that person. They pay for their sins. They experience just judgment, right? Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew chapter 22, 13, that those who die in their sins will go to hell, which he calls the outer darkness. There is no light there. Now, friends, these are strong words. This is the most unpopular doctrine that we could lay out before us, but do you, do you notice that Jesus is loving his enemies well and he's loving us well here by calling us to meditate on this? Right? We don't think about death enough. We think, ah, mm, that's a conversation killer. Hey, let's, let's have dinner and talk about when we're all going to die. We don't want to talk about that. We'd rather just sort of push it off and focus on the here and now. But friends, all of us will die and none of us know when we will die. And Jesus is loving us well by pointing out there is a day coming when you will die. And he tells those who are spiritually blind, you'll die in your sin if you don't embrace the light. Jesus is like a physician here who walked into the room with your test results. And he tells you, I have good news and I have bad news. Let's give you the bad news first. It's cancer. And as you let that blow sink in and you're shocked, he comes again and he says, but listen, here's the good news. We caught it just in time. And we have a treatment. And I can guarantee you, if you start today, you'll be cured. What would you say in that moment? Let me think about it. No, you wouldn't. You'd say, all right, sign me up. Where do we go? I don't need to go home. Let's, let's start this now. Right? I pray that's each of us as we hear Jesus warning us of what it means to die in your sin, eternal death, in the outer darkness, apart from him. I pray that's each of us. Because the Pharisees do the complete opposite. They say, I'm not sick. I don't have cancer. You're not a real doctor. Or as we would hear in our, our world today, sin isn't real. Jesus was just a man. Heaven and hell is a farce. I'll be just fine. And Jesus says, there's coming a day when it's going to be too late. You will die in your sin if you continue in the spiritual darkness. And he doesn't say it because he's hateful or bigoted. He says it because he loves them. You'll be cast out into the outer darkness of hell, away from the joy and presence of Christ forever. You don't want that. So they go on and they show, unfortunately, they still don't understand. Verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he said, where I'm going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. He's, he's saying again, this is why you don't understand this, because you're spiritually blind. Then Jesus repeats himself, but I want you to hear this. I want you to hear the invitation here for his enemies, because it's for us as well. In verse 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins. He already said that, but this is new. He says, unless you believe, he talks directly to them, unless you believe that I am, there's no he there in the original language, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Friends, let's hear that call from Jesus, our loving Savior, to embrace him as the light and beware of spiritual darkness. But then finally, our last point, Jesus goes on. To tell us that in order to embrace, truly embrace the light, we have to, number three, comprehend the cross. 
Now, we've already seen a reference, two references to the cross here, sort of subtly. Verse 20 says, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And in John, that, that word hour is shorthand for the time of Jesus' death, which was the purpose he came to fulfill, fulfill his hour to die for the sins of man. Then we see some irony. That's another thing John likes to do. He likes to use irony in verse 22 when, he said, when, when the, they ask, will he kill himself? Well, no, Jesus will not kill himself, but he is going to willingly die for the sins of mankind. So Jesus goes on at the end of our passage to show us that the cross is key to properly understanding who he is. He says this explicitly. Look at verse 28. So Jesus said to him, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just (laughs) as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So Jesus is foretelling his death at the hand of the religious authorities. He'll be nailed to a wooden cross. He will be literally lifted up on that cross. And he says, when that happens, you'll know that I am the light. Now here's what he's not saying here. He's not saying when I die on the cross, all of the religious leaders will all immediately be converted. It's not what he's saying. It doesn't happen. Some, yes, praise God. But what he is saying is that if they or anyone come to know who Jesus truly is, they will only know him because of and through his cross. Friends, we can't know Jesus as the light of the world unless we comprehend him as the one who was crucified for us on the cross. That's what he is saying here. Jesus is merely a good moral teacher, won't cut it. He doesn't allow us to formulate this idea. Jesus is a political activist, that won't do. They tried to make him king in chapter 6, and he said, no, thank you. Jesus, who will confirm us in our prideful pursuit of religious self-righteousness, that's what the Pharisees wanted, that Jesus is of no benefit to us. Jesus, as whatever you and I try to make him to be for us, All of that falls short of the biblical Jesus. And Jesus says, if you want to know who I am, if you really want to know what God is like, look to the cross. Look to my cross. At the center of the Bible, at the center of his life and ministry, and at the center of our faith is the cross of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. If Jesus is the light of the world, the cross is the magnifying lamp that's placed on Jesus. Do you know what a magnifying lamp is? Think of a magnifying glass, has a stand, and there's light all around it. So when you put it on something, not only is it enlarged and magnifies, it shines brighter than you could ever see. Jesus says, if you want to know God, if you want to know me, look to the cross. That's how you understand. So what the cross does for us is it takes the attributes, the characteristics of who God is, and it magnifies them in a way we can never imagine on our own. And we could go on and on about these attributes, but let me just list three attributes of God that the cross magnifies for us. Let's consider these for a moment. First is the holiness of God. God's holy. He is unique in his perfections. And as a holy God, he demands holiness. That's why when you read the Old Testament, all those things that seem so foreign to us about detailed laws and instructions about clothing and food, what is God doing? He's setting apart a holy people. There's one problem, though. People are not holy. We are unholy. 
Therefore, we can't stand before a holy God because of our sin. So the question is, how can we as unholy people stand in the presence of a holy God? And the answer is the cross. Where the perfectly holy, blameless God-man, Jesus Christ, who obeyed the Father's will, was nailed there for us. That we may become blameless by his death on our behalf. To comprehend the cross is to comprehend the holiness of God. Not just his holiness, though. Consider his love. This is one of John's favorite themes. I'll simply let Scripture speak here. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he loved us. So what did he do? He gave his son, meaning he gave his life. He laid down the life of his beloved son so that whoever believes in him, should not perish, should not be cast to the outer darkness, but will have the light of eternal life. Consider 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Therefore, because he loved us, here's what he did. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that's a good word. You can stump your friends with this one. What does that mean? It means a sacrifice in the context of Christ's death, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it into favor. God did that for us because he loves us. To comprehend the cross is to comprehend the love of God. Consider the righteousness of God. God is righteous. Not only does he do only what's good, but only what's just. He only executes justice. Therefore, he looks on sin your sin and my sin, and he doesn't sweep it under the rug, but he demands justice. What judge, would you say that's a good judge, if he looked on a guilty, known murderer and said, you know what, we're just going to let this slide. You would say that is an unjust judge. So then, how can a righteous God look on guilty sinners like us and clear us? And the answer is the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we, the guilty, might become the righteousness of God. In the courtroom of divine justice, the guilty receive a not guilty verdict, not because the judge just swept it under the rug, but because Christ took the guilty verdict and punishment for us. So God looks on us and says, you are righteous, or to put it in the language of John 8, Christ died for our sins so that we don't have to die in our sins. But instead we can walk in the light of life. Friends, to comprehend the cross is to comprehend the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the love of God. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And let's look at verse 30. What an encouraging verse after we read so much of these religious leaders who just can't seem to get it, verse 30 says, And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. And friends, may that be us. You see, Jesus, in Jesus was life, and life was the light of man. But the light did not know, or the world did not know the light. The, the world tried to stomp out the light. And for a moment, it looked like the darkness won. Jesus died and was buried, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death and Satan. He ascended into heaven, having completed the work as the light of the world, and he'll come again 
And he will one day do away with every ounce of darkness as he ushers in his eternal reign. And from now until then, the call is for us to embrace the light, beware of spiritual darkness, and comprehend the cross. And take that light and declare it to the world so that they too may have life. So the question for us this morning is not, will we see the light, but when will we see the light? Will we answer the invitation of Jesus and embrace the light by comprehending the cross, by believing in him? Or will we continue on in spiritual darkness, rejecting him when he's right in front of us, offering us the surpassing worth of knowing him? And my prayer for each of us is that it would be the former, that we would embrace him and know the surpassing worth of the light of Christ. Let's pray together.